Hello and welcome to How Westminster Works, a podcast and politics home that takes a deep dive into the history, quirks and peculiar practices of UK politics. I'm your host Alan Tolhurst and in this episode we'll explore the process by which everything that politicians say in the House of Commons and the House of Lords is taken down, written up and recorded for posterity in something known as Hansard. Hansard is the official report of all parliamentary debates, where every day a team of reporters produce a near transcript, or as they describe it, a substantially verbatim account of the proceedings. I'll speak to current Hansard reporters and editors, as well as historians and politicians, about its importance in the modern era, as well as being a vital tool for aiding our understanding of how democracy has operated for the last few hundred years, some of which some MPs might have preferred not to have been preserved in print forever. Lord Samuel once described it as history's ear already listening. But here's Charlie Brown, who's been a reporter at Hansard for almost a decade, to explain how the job works. We work in a, in a team of 16 reporters a day um, and we go in and out of the chamber and listen to like five minutes of debate each, which we call a turn. Um, we actually stay in the chamber for like the five minutes beforehand as well. So we go in in pairs because it's you could have 650 members in at a time and you can't keep an eye on them all at once. So we like to have two pairs of eyes so that you can see if somebody heckles on one side of the room um, while somebody else is speaking on the other side, you can see who it is um, and all of that kind of stuff. So we, we do like check noting for five minutes and then we take over at an appropriate point and then we've got the five minutes that we're responsible for reporting. So I'd sit in there and I'd take a log, so basically note down which members are getting up to speak things that i might check when i get back to my desk like um names of companies like how they're rendered um perhaps quotations that a member has read out um just verify those um and also while i'm in the chamber i'll be thinking about things that i need to ask a member for right then and there so one of them would be like um, a constituent's name perhaps that's not findable on the internet um, so I'd send them a note and ask them like how do you how do you spell this name how do you how do you send those notes then so this is probably like one of the, the quirkier things in Hansard um, so we actually still ha- like send a handwritten note we don't we tend not to email unless it's a last resort um, because it's the quickest way to reach a member when they're actually in the chamber because they might not be looking at their phone um, and because of our tight publication deadlines, we need to get the answer as quickly as possible. So we have um, we have a dumb waiter outside of the chamber called the shoot, um, and we just put a note in an envelope and send it down in the dumb waiter. And then the next person that comes out of the chamber will open the dumb waiter, and hopefully there will be a response that they'll bring back into the office, which is um, very close behind the chamber. So um, yeah, it's quite quirky, and it sounds old-fashioned, but it's not. There's a reason we do it. It's actually the quickest way to to get the information. So that was quite difficult during the pandemic because because obviously members were not in the chamber, like almost all of them were at home. And having to rely on emails when somebody's email inbox is probably full of thousands is a bit trickier. The job can be made harder by the wide range of voices in the chamber. In 2017, the SNP's Alan Brown confessed that Hansard reporters took to passing him notes, asking him to write down his questions because his strong Scottish accent was making it difficult to get an accurate record of them. I think think another important thing to say on that is that so sometimes members might get notes from us in the chamber and it might it might often seem to the member I'll often send a note and I think this will sound so stupid to them because they're not hearing what I'm hearing right now but like it can be quite hard to hear sometimes when you're in there and then when you're back at your desk actually the sound has captured the microphones have captured it really well and you can hear it a lot better but because you're not sure when you're in the chamber you might just send for it anyway just just did you say this because just to check because if it doesn't come up on the microphone then you're a bit stuck so that is why you would sometimes send and I think that um, 
that sometimes is possibly not obvious to members who are like a lot closer to the person that was speaking maybe or they are the person that was speaking themselves (laughs) so um that can be a bit of a that can be a bit difficult and like yeah I can't really I mean you know what it's like in the chamber like sometimes that noise it can be it's really like we always say that the hardest turn in the week is like 11.55 on a Wednesday because it's like right before PMQs people are all coming in everyone is not really interested in what's going on except for the Prime Minister's going to arrive and then the Prime Minister arrives and everyone like cheers or boos or whatever they want to do and it's really hard to hear the person that's actually speaking at the time um so yeah yeah, and also you've got you've got people like me clonking past you in the press gallery (laughs) as well as we all pile in for 12 o'clock for pmqs and you've been there for for half an hour already covering scottish questions or welsh questions so yeah there's a lot of distraction it's not just accents but vernacular and language that can prove challenging too for the reporters as the way politicians speak is always changing and new words are being uttered all the time into the permanent record Earlier this year, Faye Jones, the Conservative MP for Brecon and Radnorshire, tweeted that she had become the first person to say the Welsh word kutch, which all devotees to Gavin and Stacey know means cuddle, in the chamber. Mr Speaker, on Friday I'll be holding my team meeting in the local pub because under Welsh Government rules we are not allowed to go to our socially distanced office. We cannot do park run, we cannot watch outdoor sports on the touchline, but we yep. can kutch up together in the clubhouse to watch it. In fact, there is even a website which records the first person to utter a word or phrase in the Commons Chamber. For example, Brexit was first spoken by the ex-Tory MP David Nuttall in 2014, a full two years before the EU referendum. It has since been mentioned 30,647 times and counting. It appears MPs themselves are well aware of this phenomenon. One told me of a plan hatched by a couple of backbenchers to see if they could be the first ones to say obscure and somewhat rude phrases culled from the Urban Dictionary and slip them past the Hansard reporters. That idea isn't anything new. In 2013, the senior Conservative Penny Mordaunt, at the time a junior minister in the local government department, used a jolly debate ahead of the Easter recess to give what seemed to be a heartfelt speech about hen and cock welfare. Penny Mordaunt. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This year we have an early Easter, though not so early perhaps that we need to provision ourselves with chocolate eggs as soon as the Christmas decorations were down at Epiphany. As some supermarket seems to have substituted Easter eggs, fluffy chicks and chocolate bunnies for tinsel and crackers at Cockcrow on the 7th of January, the animals of spring have been a common sight in our supermarkets for some time. But even though the weather continues to be distinctly wintry, there is no reason to give the real egg layers the cold shoulder. The cause of hen and cock welfare is one raised with me by many of my constituents, with particular regard to beak trimming and battery cages. Except it turned out the naval reservist had actually delivered the statement as a forfeit for some dining misdemeanour after a Navy training course, and was made to say a rude word repeatedly in the chamber, along with mentioning each of the names of the officers present. She actually seemed to have got away with it before she confessed to the prank the following year, when everyone could go back to the official record in Hansard and see for themselves. Actively seeking to get certain words committed to the Hansard record can also serve a more serious purpose. When important things need to be said in politics, they are said in the chambers because they are written in Hansard and therefore down as a permanent record. In the words of the former House of Lords Speaker Lord Fowler, Hansard is a central part of parliamentary transparency and helps voters to hold politicians accountable for their words and actions. We need it today as much as we ever have. When MPs apologise for breaking the rules, it is to the House, so their statement is captured in the official record forever. Similarly, if an MP is accused of making an error, lying, or misrepresenting something in the Commons, they are urged to come back and correct the record as soon as possible, because what they say will exist wrongly forever if not. 
For the last several years, the Labour MP Jess Phillips has read out a list of names of women who've been killed by their partners over the last 12 months, allowing their identities to be permanently committed to the public record and ensuring each woman is never forgotten. Since last year on this day, these are the women killed in the UK where a man has been convicted or charged as the primary perpetrator in the case. Vanita Knoll, Tracy Kidd, Nellie Mustafa, Zahida B, Josephine K, Shadika Mosin Patel. Sometimes what doesn't end up in Hansard is just as important as the words that do. The reporters try to capture the debates as best they can, but sometimes the drama isn't verbal. In December 2018, the Labour MP, Lord Russell Moyle, protested the then Prime Minister Theresa May pulling a vote on Brexit by grabbing the ceremonial mace, a huge gold ornament that sits on the table in the middle of the chamber, a symbol of the Queen's authority. Chaos then ensued. on the matter. Uh, I think David debate could be resumed what then? I was in the gallery reporting on the debate at the time as Russell Moyle dramatically marched towards the door with MPs shouting at him. Eventually, the mace was retrieved by the sergeant-at-arms and restored to its place, with the MP ejected by the Speaker John Burko. But if you look at the Hansard report of that night, there is no reference to the incident except for an oblique interruption written in brackets. I'm grateful to a dedicated servant of the House for bringing forward the mace and restoring it. The debate transcripts alone don't do justice to just how rowdy Parliament often gets, especially during Prime Minister's questions. The jeers, roars and hear-hears from the benches behind the party leaders do not make it into what becomes a deceptively sober final report. And that is perhaps the most interesting part of what Hansard is. Because people who work there are reporters, not transcribers, they make decisions about what their version of events looks like, which may differ slightly from what actually took place. Historically, it has led to some marked differences. If you compare the versions of some of Winston Churchill's speeches as recorded by the Churchill War Papers and those in Hansard, they're not just subtle, but sometimes marked differences. John Weiss, the editor of Hansard in the House of Lords, explains more. Churchill's um, We'll Fight Them on the Beaches speech was not as we are told it is, or as Churchill subsequently recorded it. Um, if you go to the Hansard version is different from the gramophone record recording that Churchill made that afternoon after he delivered the speech in the Commons. Um, you're touching on a really important point there, um, which I think is that Hansard needs to be very aware of who our audience is. Is it the member who's very concerned about the beauty, the clarity of their speech, um, or is it the public? Is it the taxpaying public who were everyone in Hansard is a public servant? Um, and are, is, are, are they our audience? So in the 19th century, you often find, if you look back through the old volumes, you'll see asterisks by some speeches, and that signifies that the member has gone through and corrected the speech. They will be driven not by sort of authenticity to the speech event, but by a reputational um, desire to as good as possible, to make the speech as coherent as possible. Um, whereas if our audience is not members, but the public, then we want to be transparent and give members accountability for the speeches that they make and the political power that they're wielding. So how a member wants a speech to appear isn't necessarily the same as how we'll report it for the public, um, because we're driven not by beauty of the speech, but by authenticity to the speech event. Before Hansard existed as we know it now, which is more or less a straight account of each day's proceedings, 
Parliamentary reporting was a much more selective and indeed biased affair. The job of, of parliamentary reporting goes back as far as the ancient Egyptians, where scribes were respected members of society, exempt from military service and who did not have to perform manual labour. In return they were tasked with creating a permanent record of that era's political decisions. But that control over what was written down, and crucially what wasn't, a theme we'll return to, meant they became powerful in their own right. In Britain, that power led to a distrust of reporting by parliamentarians of their daily business, which was outright banned until the late 18th century. In fact, the public gallery could be cleared if MPs thought reporters were taking notes of what they were saying. Those who sought to print copies of speeches and write about what happened in Westminster could be prosecuted, and many were. In the foreword to a recent history of Hansard, former Lord Speaker Lord Fowler explained that politicians have not always wanted a full report of what they said in Parliament to be published. So Hansard's history is tied up with the growth of freedom of speech for the press, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries. The invention of the printing press made it harder for the authorities to clamp down on publishing, and the rules were loosened on unofficial parliamentary reports after a legal battle in the 1770s by the radical MP and journalist John Wilkes. Thereafter, Parliament did not attempt to enforce a 1738 resolution preventing reporting of what was said in the chamber, and the start of the 19th century saw a boom in publications writing about Parliament. As historian Dr. Philip Salmon from the History of Parliament Research Project explains. The extraordinary thing about it is that it's, uh, it's obviously a commercial operation. It's unofficial and people are making money out of this. It seems extraordinary to us today that you could make money out of reporting on what MPs are saying in Parliament and selling it. But for you know a good chunk of the 19th century, certainly up until the 1850s, most of the uh, publishing houses and printers and enterprising concerns that get involved in this are making cash. Um, the leading uh, reporters are from the Times and the Morning Chronicle and the Standard uh, and the Morning Herald later on, newspapers like that. And Hansard, as it's called at the time, is just one of many uh, that take these reports and edit them in a certain way and then produce them for sale on a commercial basis. So most of the reporting from the point of view of Hansard anyway is done by the Times journalists and by other newspaper journalists. It was estimated 2 million people a week were reading the various reports. But the issue for the scribes of the day was that in the old commons chamber, before the fire that ripped through the palace of Westminster in the 1830s, there was no specific place for them to sit, and they would have to fight for space among the public who came to watch on. This also made it harder to report, as they tried to listen over the chatter from people, and because the gallery was at the opposite end to the speaker, MPs often had their backs to the reporters as they turned to face the chair as they spoke. Dr. Salmon said a turning point in being able to reserve space for reporters came in 1803. And by other newspaper journalists. Um, and they have a rather difficult task, particularly before 1834, in the old House of Commons as it was, before the fire destroyed the palace and, and obviously they then moved into temporary accommodation. But the old palace, uh, they had to share the gallery with uh, the public, the strangers gallery as it was called. It was opposite the, the speaker's chair. Uh, very often they couldn't get in. Um, there's a classic example, I think, in uh, 1803, where William Pitt is making this incredibly important speech about restarting the war with France. It was on the 25th of May, 1803. And there's so many people have crammed into the gallery, the reporters can't get in. So the report doesn't appear anywhere. Nobody knows what was said. <laughs> one of those vying to write reports for one of the more successful new newspapers was a young Charles Dickens, who just out of school taught himself shorthand and got a job on his uncle's title, The Mirror of Parliament. It was his commitment to the craft which helped set himself apart from the other reporters, as Hugo Bowles, English professor at the University of Foggy in Italy, explains. Um, in those days, there was no sort of... Um, he didn't have much money, and so what he did was he bought a book, 
a, a manual called brachygraphy, which cost him 10 shillings, which was actually quite a lot of money, quite a big investment. Um, but it was like a sort of do-it-yourself shorthand guide. Um, and off he went. Um, now, he tells us about that learning of shorthand in David Copperfield and how difficult it was. He calls it a savage stenographic mystery. Um, and that's because it was difficult. Um, when you look at the system, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly complex system. There are 90 symbols to learn. Um, and it was really, really difficult. But that was the system that all the parliamentary reporters were using. Bowles, who wrote about this in his book Dickens and the Stenographic Mind, explains how reliance on this difficult method of shorthand meant reports from the time came with their own editing and embellishment. And then, of course, the other thing is when the politicians themselves um, uh, sort of didn't like what had, what had come out. Now, I don't really know enough about that, but I think that there's the incident with Dickens is that um, what happened in 1833, for example, was that Edward Stanley, who was the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, wasn't very happy with the way that the Mirror of Parliament had reported one of his speeches. Um, I don't know why, whether he thought it wasn't accurate or because he just thought, oh, I don't really mean, I don't really want to have that published. I think I'd better change it. It's, it's, I don't really know that. But um, he summoned Dickens to his office. Obviously, he was, Dickens wasn't famous. He wasn't Dickens. You know, it was just, he was just a, a reporter. He summoned Dickens to his office and he dictated a new speech to him. And that was what was, became reported in the Mirror of Parliament. Dickens left the gallery in 1834 to work for the Morning Chronicle and wasn't entirely complimentary about his time in Parliament. I have worn my knees by writing on them on the old back row of the old gallery of the House of Commons. And I have worn my feet by standing to write in a preposterous pen in the old House of Lords, where we used to be huddled together like so many sheep, he said in a speech to the newspaper press fund many years later. He also chose to make David Copperfield, one of his most famous characters, a reporter of parliamentary debate for a newspaper. I have tamed that savage stenographic mystery. I make a respectable income by it. I am in high repute for my accomplishment in all pertaining to the art, and I'm joined with 11 others in reporting the debates in Parliament for a morning newspaper, Copperfield says, in one which clearly thinly disguised autobiography. Night after night, I record predictions that never come to pass, professions that are never fulfilled, explanations that are only meant to mystify. I wallow in words. Britannia, that unfortunate female, is always before me, like a trussed fowl, skewered through and through with office pens, and bound hand and foot with red tape. I am sufficiently behind the scenes to know the worth of political life. I am quite an infidel about it, and shall never be converted. Dickens was not the only literary figure to dabble in parliamentary reporting. As Professor Nikki Hessel explains in her book, Literary Authors, Parliamentary Reporters, which covers the time poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge spent in the public gallery at the end of the 18th century, as well as the writers Samuel Johnson and William Hazlitt. Coleridge, better known for writing Kubla Khan and the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, hated the punishing hours, declaring, I shall give up this newspaper business. It is too, too fatiguing. He did end up writing a poem later in his life called Parliamentary Oscillators, which compare politicians to birds and ducks clucking and quacking in the chamber. Hessel explains the influence it had on him and his fellow authors. I actually wanted to call this book Genius in the Gallery because there was this idea that you get these geniuses to come in and they will automatically be really good at this because that's what being a good writer is. And I wanted to sort of flip that and say, 
there are some rules around parliamentary reporting and some of them don't actually work very well with what we think of as genius because for example creativity is a really interesting question here if you expect accurate verbatim reporting um creativity is out the window so what does someone like dickens do with that despite the success of parliamentary reporting in the mid-19th century public appetites began to decline as the century wore on with many titles including dickens's mirror of parliament going out of business dr salmon explains why yeah it's a very good question i think uh the early 19th century is a particular period where public the public have a huge interest in parliamentary proceedings um, it's already started in the 18th century, but it's sort of been put on hold by the wars. Uh, but by the time we get to the abolition of slavery, and then we move through to the Queen Caroline trials and all the huge public involvement and engagement that created uh, in the early 1820s. And then, of course, Catholic emancipation in 1829, hugely controversial issue. And then the whole debacle of parliamentary reform. Uh, all of these things fuel this massive growing interest in parliamentary proceedings and in particular in debates. And that continues for then a good sort of 10, 15 years. But by the time you get into the 1840s, early 1850s, rival ways of summarizing what has been going on in parliament begin to develop, particularly the rise of what we now call the parliamentary sketch. Mm. Uh, so very much moving away from you know, accounts on the front pages of summaries on the front pages of what people were saying into much shorter sort of bite-sized accounts, very often with a sort of satirical twist to them uh, as well. Uh, so public appetite changes. Yeah. Uh, and that, that obviously accounts for the decline in parliamentary reporting and for it not becoming such a sort of uh, viable commercial concern. But some MPs began to get upset at seeing their speeches truncated, edited, or just unreported entirely, with Irish MPs the most aggrieved that their business was largely ignored by the London papers, as well as interventions by politicians on local issues affecting their constituencies. Unfortunately, they didn't have a social media team to publish a clip for them on Twitter, so 19th century parliamentarians realised if they wanted an accurate, unedited record of what they had to say, they needed to help subsidise the endeavour themselves which is how we ended up with one official report from the 20th century onwards. Initially, the Hansard family came on the scene in 1808 as printers of parliamentary debates, taking over from the famous radical William Cobbett, who had gone bankrupt, a recurring theme in this story. They were able to stay afloat where others couldn't because Hansard didn't employ any reporters of their own, instead collating reports from other publications. But as others went out of business or scaled back their commons coverage, they were forced into hiring people to go into the gallery for them. However, they required a subsidy of £3,000 a year from Parliament in 1877 to make it as full and accurate publication as possible. This also allowed it to begin to cover things like private bills, select committees and all-night sittings, which were usually admitted from newspaper reports as they were commercially unviable. But even with the financial support over the next 20 years, the venture and six successor operations all failed, and in 1909, Hansard was brought under the auspices of Parliament fully for the first time, and the formation of the current system we know began in earnest. Conditions also improved for parliamentary reporters as the 19th century wore on, starting with the rebuilt commons after the fire, with a dedicated press gallery built for the first time, now at the other end of the chamber with seats just above the speaker's chair. That layout exists largely in the same way today, with two seats reserved for Hansard reporters in the front row, as close to the action as can possibly be. For a long time, like so much of what happened in Parliament, it was a solely male endeavour, until Jean Winder made history by becoming the first woman to become a permanent Hansard reporter in 1944, after wartime labour shortages forced the editor of the day into hiring a woman. 
But although she received more commendations on her work than for any other member of staff, she was still paid less than her male counterparts. With the support of the Speaker of the day, Winder fought for justice, but was vehemently opposed by the Treasury. Eventually, after a long battle in 1954, they relented, and she crowned her victory by becoming the first woman to make a speech at a press gallery dinner. It puts further pressure on our supply chains. Our President. Well, the um, situation facing Mr Hewitt is clearly a failure, and I'm glad that my honourable friend has raised it on the floor of the House, and I will send an extract from Hansard to DVLA so that they are aware of this particular case um, once Hansard is published. Um, however, there is good news from DVLA. Draw his opinion on the public health model out, which is, which is a shame. Um, yes, we're... Well, I'm, I'm grateful to the Honourable Gentleman for giving me because he's always very keen on parity. So just for reference and for Hansard, could he confirm where the Shadow Home Secretary is? <laughs> um, I, I, I have no knowledge um, as to the location of the Shadow Home Secretary for, for, for the Hansard record. She's not here, but I, as a... Yes. ...from this government is you always need it in writing, and even then it isn't necessarily delivered. <laughs> but uh, it is, <laughs> I, I will, but then I'll make some progress. He, he'll be able to read it in Hansard in the morning. Been oh. a surprising degree of hypocrisy here. Well, I, I don't normally like to use the H word, but I, they will be print, they will be printed in Hansard, and I, I won't be applying for it to be expunged. What's interesting is the more you study how Hansard works, the more it throws up fundamental questions about how we record history and what really is a true representation of speech. But overall, the work of parliamentary reporters in tidying things up has long been seen as a good thing to the history of discourse. Dr Salmon pointed to a quote in Punch back in 1849, when the magazine compares them to dustmen who sift through the rubbish and only publish the stray silver spoons. And while Dickens and Coleridge failed to write fondly about their time in the chamber, Charlie Brown from Hansard here explains why she and her colleagues love their job as reporters. So I just love the actual essence of the job itself. Like if you like problem solving and like puzzles and um, kind of like challenges, there's so many different challenges on a daily basis that you can solve and it's quite satisfying. I, I like that and I like playing with language. So that's like one of the reasons. It's also like just, it, there is, it's really cool to be in like um, debates and in committees and stuff and just be sitting there actually seeing it happening. Um, and like sometimes you can, I think, take it a bit for granted, but then when you actually, you sit there and go, oh, wow, actually, this is amazing. And that that is really fun. I love that. I never kind of get sick of that. Um, but also, like, my colleagues are amazing. Um, I, I love the team of people I work with, and I literally couldn't ask better colleagues. So that's great. But I also just think Hansard is really important. It's like an access point to democracy, if you like. Because um, especially, I mean, I'm hoping, like, this is less now, but, like, you know, in the time of, like, fake news and misinformation, disinformation, social media, and everybody just perhaps not sure, like, where the truth lies, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's the official report of Parliament. Like, that's what Hansard is called, the official report. So I feel like if you really want to know what a member said or, um, you know, then that's, that's the first point of call. And it's that job of crafting the official, immutable record of parliamentary democracy that is more important than ever. Thank you so much to all our guests on the episode. Thanks again to you all for listening. The editor was Laura Silver. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home 
or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week for another episode of How Westminster Works. <laughs>